Alexander in Mimesis by Alexander Augustus. Narrated by Mike Bodie. Mimesis Golem. There was one thought in Alexander's head which dominated all others. What am I going to make? What would he leave behind when he was gone? He rubbed the sleep from his eyes and began to panic. He labored to lift his head from the soft cloud of the pillows and realized he must have fallen asleep while fully clothed. It was New Year's Eve and having landed in the U.S. less than 12 hours ago, he was still dizzy with jet lag and travel fatigue. Outside, the wind gusted and the snow danced. The apartment was filled with a soft, pale, reflected light, coruscating along the edges of the gilded mirrors, the white marble chess set, around the rims of pots and pans hung in the kitchenette. I could do a light installation, he thought. Something with shadows, or glass etching, or maybe something kinetic. Maybe something about ghosts. He heard that Manchester was New Hampshire's haunted city. The light changed as the sky darkened, and his idea vanished with it. He plopped two eggs in a pan of water, peeled a banana, and unearthed a box of tea bags from a suitcase. He looked for a kettle. My God, do I need to boil water in a pan like a witch? This made him think. He opened his phone and searched up Salem which turned out to be only an hour's drive away. He dialed John back home in the UK. It rang twice and was picked up. Alexander said, Hello, I have an order of poo bums here for Monsieur Willie Peepee. Is he around? I can hold. There was a slight pause before he heard the familiar nasal whine of, Oh no, why does this always happen to me? What have I done to deserve it? They both laughed at the familiar exchange. Happy New Year, John. How are sales going? Well, the art books and railway books are flying off the shelves as always, but we're almost out of both, as happens when you're dependent on donations. There was a thud as he placed the phone on a surface. How are you? How's America going? Have you started your work yet? Alexander turned the stove off the heat, spooned a scalding egg from the pan and ran it under the cold tap. 
I've only just arrived. I'm shattered, but the apartment's good and everyone's really nice. They took me shopping last night, so I have supplies. I bought these crisps called dynamite, which are purple and they glow and literally burnt the roof of my mouth off. Oh, and cider here is just juice. There's no alcohol in it, but for some reason they call it cider. Oh, and guess what flavour of hummus I found? Hummus is always awful. It's made from bits of mashed up tree roots and it tastes like compost. There is nothing you could put in hummus that would make it acceptable. What about chocolate hummus? He laughed. Would you try that? I'm speechless and I'm disappointed in you and in America. Good. Anyway, there are no kettles in America. I've looked all over my apartment and can't find one. I had to boil water in a pan like a witch with a cauldron. And that got me thinking. Salem's only an hour away. There could be a lot of material there, a lot of drama, with the witch trials and stuff, history and magic. Maybe I could link it to ghosts or UFOs or QAnon. I love that quintessential American stuff. Alexander rolled the eggs on the counter till their shells cracked and dropped off. He crossed over to his sofa and picked up a flyer for an antique shop from the coffee table. I was told to go to this antique shop down the street. Cool. You know I'm a fan of antiques. The sound muffled, as if John had pinned the phone between his ear and shoulder. You think you'll find an idea in there? Alexander stood at the window and watched snowflakes piling on the windowsill. A winter moth flapped through the wind and smacked against the pane outside. He sighed suddenly. You know, when a moth gets trapped inside, and bashes repeatedly against the window. Sometimes I feel like that, flapping from place to place where the wind takes me. I get caught inside a gallery or museum or theatre or community centre or scientific institute until I'm noticed, bashing against things. And then someone opens a window so I can fly out again, off to the next place. It's just temporary. Try not to think like that. I would love to have the adventures you have. Also, why a moth? Why not a butterfly? Or a bat? Or a fly? Flies have a loaded meaning, you know. So do butterflies and bats. They're gothic or promiscuous or dirty or whatever. But moths are good. More of a blank canvas. No expectations for moths. Plus, they're almost all patterning, which I love. There's a lot I could do with the wings. Perhaps I could make a hundred steel moths and scatter them throughout Manchester. I have to go, Alex. Sorry. The period between Christmas and New Year is always busy. I think people are just desperate to get out of the house. Enjoy a cauldron of tea, Harry Potter, and Happy New Year. John hung up, and Alexander set his phone down. Outside, the blizzard had eased off. He pulled on his best attempt at snow gear. Woolly gloves full of holes, a scarf he'd found at the back of his mother's wardrobe, and his three thickest jackets, one over another. At least his boots were new. He headed out into the blistering cold. The effort of walking made his breath steam. His boots left deep prints in the snow, each step crunching deep chasms to the pavement. I could pour concrete into the holes, and they would set into sculptures, he thought. Negative space monuments to where I've walked. They would be revealed in spring as the snow melts. 
Then he imagined his concrete blocks causing an accident. The harsh wind whipped the idea away. The snow had been plowed high onto the sidewalk, so he had to walk in the road, leaping into the white heaps every time a car shot past. He paused at a junction and opened a dating app, scrolling through the wunderkammer of boxed heads, shelved body parts, the occasional black void. He knew from experience that each little square was a Pandora's box, potentially containing any number of maladies. He scrolled through the grid, a wall of eyes, nipples and cheeks, face and ass, displayed as iconography. Discreet fun. Give me head. Homeless dick. Y'all whack. Need a bottom. Need a top. Need a host. Looking for daddy. Looking for son. Alexander set his profile name to NYE Plans and his avatar image a Union Jack. You party? Came a message from a profile titled My Wife Neglects Me. The T in party was capitalized. Alexander knew it was advisable to avoid any profile which used apparently random capitalized letters. They were often codes. Curious, he replied, Do you know a good place to spend NYE? Bitch, you take Tina? Came the reply. And Alexander closed the app. Anxiety returned. He looked up from his phone at an illumination of a giant LED screen displaying a shark thrashing about in bloodied water above the words, Aggressive Divorce Lawyers. Then a wave-like graphic wiped the shark away, and two wedding rings formed the start of the word, Oops. He thought about making an artwork with LED paneling. Pseudo-advertising. The image dissolved as the image of the shark had done. He spotted the antique store at a junction, across the road, avoiding a used condom and next to it what looked like a pregnancy test, lying face down. On the other side, a bouquet of flowers was tied to a lamppost, commemorating the victim of a car crash, and an empty bottle of fireball whiskey lay below. It's a ready-made installation, he thought. I could call it life cycle. His mind whirled around Duchamp's fountain, Emmons' bed, Hurst's sharks, then Lucas's tampons, or knickers, or whatever. The theme had already been exhausted. On the door of the antique shop was a vintage welcome sign, and a bell chimed as he pushed it open. The smell of lacquer, musty cloth, and leather wafted over him. A young woman and an elderly man were chatting behind the desk. They were rotating a metal object between themselves and examining the artifact. They stopped talking and turned to look, as poised and alert as detectives, as though any manner of murderer might drift in at any moment in search of an ormulu clock and candelabra set. Hi there, we're closing soon, said the woman in a hoarse voice, slightly Bostonian in her vowels. She put the metal object down and adjusted her tiny steel-rimmed glasses on her vulpine face. If you're coming in, give us your bag. There was a pause during which Alexander didn't move. Don't worry, we ask everybody, hon. He said that he didn't mind at all, and they eyed him as though he were an antique himself. Where you from? asked the man, turning around. He was tremendously large, with a nervous demeanor, and his shrewd face was riven with tiny wrinkles and cracks. From London. Well, near London. I'm from the UK. 
Alexander passed his bag to the woman and escaped behind a bookshelf before the owners could open him up and check his serial number. He wandered the narrow aisles, exploring the 70s cabinets filled with dainty figurines and collectible plates, pieces of Beatles memorabilia, Ming-style vases, ancient cameras with dusty lens plates and focusing hoods. Bronze stags leapt from weather vanes over silver trophies and crystal decanters. China dolls with bulbous heads clinked as he pushed past, and U.S. flags skimmed the top of his head. Idealized women gazed from oil paintings in elaborate frames. He heard footsteps approaching from somewhere in the maze, and slipped silently into another aisle. It was a treasure house of Americana, and he decided to buy something small as a gesture. He rifled through jars of pens, pots of rings and badges, and eventually found a basket of metallic military pins for a dollar apiece. There were enameled pins for clubs and societies, universities, veterans, and tourist attractions. He loved the weight and shine of them, like treasure. He found one with a commemorative motif for veterans of the Korean War. Then the young woman's face appeared through a gap in the shelves. You find what you're looking for? Alexander, startled, held out the pin. Just something small for my friend. She reached through the shelf and took the pin, inspecting it. Your friend a veteran? Royal Anglian Regiment? Royal Regiment of Scotland? Royal Irish Regiment? She narrowed her eyes. Royal Welsh Regiment? No, it's for my Korean friend. I'm going there in April. We study together. The woman looked bemused, and then amused. Alexander flushed crimson. I don't know. I, I just thought, come with me, she said. She led him through the maze of fur coats and commemorative spoons up to an alcove where a stuffed pheasant perched on a bookcase. She pulled out a small, thin book, the same brown color as packing paper. The title read, Instructions for American Servicemen in Britain, 1942. She opened the book and read aloud. You will quickly discover differences with the British that seem confusing and even wrong, like driving on the left side of the road and having money based on an impossible accounting system and drinking warm beer. Alexander returned the look the woman gave him. She continued. You are going to Great Britain as a part of an allied offensive to meet Hitler and beat him on his own ground. She paused again. It's interesting, right? It's about you Brits, an American perspective. Your grandparents, I suppose. It's a quick read, and who knows? You might even find it useful. Practical. She handed it to him, and Alexander explored the object. She said, It was issued by the U.S. government for our military GIs, but this is a reprint, not valuable. Five bucks, she added. Not an antique, not vintage either, just secondhand. Alexander began to read. The writing was so colloquial, it sounded like a friend chatting and covered topics from how bad British food was, to how bad British weather was, to how warm British beer was, to how much less the British were paid. He chuckled as he read aloud, You will find that the British care little about size, not having the biggest of many things, as we do. The woman looked pleased and plucked the book from his hands. She flicked through the pages again and read in a faux British accent. British money is in pounds, shillings and pence. The British are used to this system and they like it. And all your arguments that the American decimal system is better won't convince them. 
they won't be pleased to hear that you call it funny money either. She handed the book back to him with a smile. Good accent, you think? I'm a military brat, born in Essex, but the book does say not to imitate British speech or accent, so I guess I broke that rule already. The first section of the pamphlet was entitled No Time to Fight Old Wars and urged Irish Americans not to attack the English as payback for their history of persecution. Instead, they must set aside their grandfather's grievances and forgive the Redcoats for the empire. Alexander read in his crispest RP. If a fielder misses a catch at cricket, the crowd will shout, good try, even if it looks like a bad fumble. In America, the crowd would probably shout, take him out. Alexander scoffed. <laughs> really? I think we come off quite well. He continued. The British play sports even if they are not good at them. Alexander laughed, and the woman looked proud of herself. He put the Korean veteran's pin back in its basket and paid for the book. It slipped nicely into his pocket. As he passed the desk, the elderly man tried to initiate a new line of questioning, something to do with Prince Charles and Vlad the Impaler. Alexander made his excuses and escaped, before he was labeled and put out for sale alongside the Beatles' memorabilia. It was lighter out than expected. The snow caught every illumination from the street and sky and transmuted it into pale blue or orange. The world was muffled and quilted. The time on his phone was 2045. A car cruised past him, turned and accelerated down a snowy road. The cars here are so big and chunky and shiny, he thought. They look like oversized chocolate bars. He turned left onto Willow Street and found himself walking alongside the graveyard. He observed the toppled obelisks and a scattering of headstones twisted in the ground. It sounded for a moment like the wind was blowing a distant conversation to him. He could hear a group of voices from amongst the graves, too faint to distinguish. A piece of paper like a discarded receipt flooded over the fence, caught on the wind. He looked around, but there was no one in sight. As he turned the corner, he thought he heard a distant call like, Meet it. Or, Read it. Or, Feed it. And then something ricocheted against the bonnet of a parked car. He saw a silver quarter lying in the snow. Thrown by whom? Just kids, he told himself, but turned at the next junction to be on the safe side. As far as he could tell, the whole of Manchester was built along a single road, which was a relief for one with little sense of direction. He passed a vast red brick building, brutalist in style with cuboid sections and elevated angular walkways. The rows of tiny windows reminded him of a 50s spaceship fantasy. A woman and her three children were waving LED hearts at the windows and shouting, We love you, baby. We love you. Happy New Year. It must be some kind of theater or concert hall, and he wondered who the celebrity might be. Alexander had been given directions to a friendly bar downtown. He reasoned that the locals there would have to talk to him. It would be cruel not to on New Year's Eve. Besides, everyone knew that Americans were friendly. And even though New Englanders were said to be more reserved, they certainly wouldn't be as stiff as people back home. Before he entered the sports bar, he looked through the smoky glass. One pool table 
five garish screens playing different reality shows, and a bar with five men and one woman gathered around it. He guessed they were fifty-ish. On each table was an arrangement of American flags, spring wobbly Happy New Year signs, and sparkling party hats which no one was wearing. He pushed the door open and was hit with a blast of pop music and heat carrying a sweet liquor smell. As he tapped the slush from his boots, they all turned to look. There was a palpable lull in the chatter. He was suddenly sweating under his layers, while his cheeks and ears were still numb from the cold. Cindy Lauper's True Colors was playing on the jukebox. He approached the bar, unzipping his jackets, and scanned the selection of draft beers on tap. Five years ago, a brilliant blue drink in Busan had caused his skin to swell up and turn lobster red. He had to wash the concoction down with bottles of cast beer to recover, or as the locals called it, piss water. He had heart palpitations for hours. Tonight, he would play it safe. Can I have a pint, please? Any pale ale? The barman was a lanky man with an apple-round stomach. A pint? He asked cynically, then sucked air between his teeth. Alexander ruffled the menu and traced his finger along the price list. I mean, sixteen fluid ounces of beer, please. The barman's face lifted as he left. Alexander handed over his card and silently warned himself about playing the professional Englishman, a term he learned in Washington, D.C., several years previously, for those odd people who go to other countries, especially the U.S., and become more English than ever, behaving like two-dimensional extras from the set of some BBC period drama. Most particularly, using their accents to sound eccentric and intellectual, when in fact they were often quite dull. The song on the jukebox ended, and for a moment the bar felt quiet. Every conversation at a lull. Africa by Toto began to play. He began mentally mapping the route to the next bar he would try. Where are you from? asked the man closest, in a deep, gravel voice. He was plump, with a wispy beard and a denim jacket a few sizes too small. Underneath was a stained white t-shirt with the legend, Alcohol won't solve your problems, but neither will water or milk. His jacket was littered with patches sporting slogans such as, Sometimes I wake up grumpy, other times I let him sleep. And, you'll be my glass of wine, and I'll be your shot of whiskey. A cap constricted his bouffant haircut with the words, Live free or die, New Hampshire, printed across it in bold letters. He had been drinking alone. Alexander felt he remembered something, but it slipped away. I'm from London. Well... Brighton, really, although technically Wales, Cardiff, the UK, Britain. Alexander knew he was becoming the stuttering Hugh Grant type now, and hated himself for it. And you? The man offered a gnarled, veiny hand with a yellowed sheen around the knuckles. I'm Kevin, he said, adding with a cheesy grin. Kevin from heaven. From heaven, Alexander repeated, deciding not to point out that Kevin and heaven did not really rhyme. That's right, Kevin, from heaven, said Kevin, his watery eyes trained on Alexander. Welcome to Earth, Kevin, and Happy New Year. Would you like to play a game of pool? The barman set down his beer and offered a receipt with a pen. No, thank you, Alexander said, and was about to turn away when Kevin grabbed him by the wrist. 
It's for the tip, pal. Startled, he blushed and apologized and quietly asked, What's an appropriate tip usually? What do you usually tip for a pint? Matching his hushed tone, Kevin said, Boy, you are fresh off the boat, huh? Minimum 15, usually 20%. I just tip $1 for every $5, okay? Don't Stop Believing by Journey played in the background. Their shadows searching in the night. Streetlights. People living just to find emotion. As Kevin prepared the table, Alexander watched one of the muted TV screens. It showed a pair of female identical twins, dressed alike, and eating at a table. Opposite them sat male twins, also dressed alike. The text on the screen read, Extreme Sisters, Double Date Extreme Brothers. With visible effort, everyone at the table lifted their forks in synchronicity, licked their lips, and adjusted their seats in tandem. Then the twin brothers leant over and kissed the twin sisters, who blushed. The whole thing was very forced. Alexander chalked his pool cue. The red brick brutalist style building. Is it a concert hall or something? There were people cheering outside. I wonder who's playing tonight. That's the jail, said Kevin. Right. I didn't realize that. Kevin made the break, and Alexander kept an eye on the time. We're enemies, you know, said Kevin. I'm an Irishman. Oh, you're Irish, he asked. He surveyed the balls, leant over, and shot, parting the five ball. I'm solids. That's cool. Is that on both sides? My great-grandparents, said Kevin proudly, on my mother's side. German on my father's. Same here, the Irish bit, not the German. Although I did live in Berlin for three years, my great-grandparents only spoke in Gaelic. Though, my dad told me that, so it's probably not true. No, I don't believe it. Not with an accent like that, buddy. You're as limey as they come. Kevin downed the rest of his margarita and swayed slightly as he approached the table. Grammy wouldn't let me talk to Englishmen like you. She's a hundred and four, never set foot in London, not even on flight transfers or layovers. He sliced the shot, sending the white ball the length of the table and into the top pocket. Alexander held back a laugh. Through the swinging door came a group of ten or so loud people, mid-twenties, straight to the bar, shouting greetings to the barman. The group fanned out, taking up space, enjoying themselves. Kevin nodded at a handsome young man in a suit and muttered something to himself. Alexander looked through the crowd and hoped for a reason to join them. He caught Kevin's eye, who slapped down his empty glass. I mean, the English don't really have a culture anymore, not since the war. All your culture now just copies ours. They both potted a couple of balls, but Alexander wasn't really enjoying the game. He tried to change the subject, however, awkwardly. Anyway, Kevin, you're from heaven. You're not even of this world, right? Right, said Kevin, without gusto. Alexander turned towards the raucous young party by the bar. One man was taller than his friends, well over six feet, with dark hair and a square jaw and thick-rimmed glasses he fiddled with often. His skin looked remarkably smooth. He looked over and smiled at Alexander, who felt his cheeks color. Another of the group reached over the bar and pulled out a TV remote. He flicked through the channels on each screen until they all displayed the Times Square New Year's Eve coverage. The music was turned up and the lights dimmed. 
Somewhere from the back room, a mirror ball sent out a kaleidoscope of stars, and a festive feeling resonated through the atmosphere. Behind him, Kevin belched and said, Do you guys say car park instead of parking lot, right? Alexander turned around, and Kevin plowed on without waiting for him to answer. You say cling film instead of saran wrap, and chips instead of french fries, and crisps instead of chips. He steadied himself on his cue. Do aluminum. Say it. Aluminium, said Alexander. It's Marshall. With the glazed expression, Kevin said, Whatever, Englishman. You shoot like a sissy anyway. He made an L shape with his thumb and index finger and planted it on his forehead. He laughed hawkishly to show that it was a joke, but not really a joke. Alexander smiled and nodded to show that he understood it was a joke, but not really a joke. Alexander studied the arrangement of balls on the table as he prepared to take his shot. He thought about making a set of sculptures of cast bronze game pieces, something like a table football game. Each player a precious sculpture with emerald or ruby eyes, kicking around a ball of platinum or onyx. He could record the public playing the game and make a film. At the end of the exhibition, the gallery could sell off the players, the ball and the table, as individual pieces. It would appeal to the art market and the interactive gallery scene alike. Is this man bothering you? A confident voice said, and Alexander turned to see the tall man with the smooth skin. You're allowed to be a dick if he is, you know. I'm Pedro, by the way. No, it's fine. He's just joking. Do tomato, shouted Kevin from across the pool table. Tomato, replied Alexander, and Kevin chuckled. Do I detect a Brit in our midst? Asked Pedro. What brings you to Manchester? Alexander explained his story. They laughed together without breaking eye contact. He felt that something was incredibly familiar about this man. Kevin finally potted the black eight ball and wandered back towards the bar. The jukebox was now under the control of the same young man who had tuned the televisions on, and the bar bounced to a mixture of 70s rock and 90s hip-hop. Suddenly there was sweat and heat, a hive of dancing bodies and blinking lights. The mirror ball spun a silver cosmos around them. When the countdown to midnight began, everyone raised their drinks in the air. Everyone cheered, and for those few moments, spirits soared. Three, two, one, happy new year! There were hugs, and someone flicking the light switch on and off to create a strobe effect. After the celebrations, Alexander ordered two drinks and showed Pedro the book from the antique shop. Pedro opened it and read, The purpose of this guide is to start getting you acquainted with the British, their country, and their ways. He scanned the chapters then landed on a page. Be a good sport. Don't make fun of British speech or accents. Don't be a show-off. <laughs> Damn boy, I think your pool partner broke every one of these rules. They laughed, and Pedro returned to reading. The British don't know how to make a good cup of coffee. You don't know how to make a good cup of tea. It's an even swap. Pedro handed the book back to Alexander and asked, So when am I coming for a cup of tea? He downed his shot of Jägermeister, then nudged his glasses up to the bridge of his nose with an index finger. And when can I see your art? Do you know what you're going to make while you're staying here? What will you leave behind? Alexander sipped his vodka and coke. There's this one idea I've been playing with, 
My grandmother's from the north, near Manchester in the UK that is, and she worked in one of the loom factories which the ones here are modelled on. They made fabric. Now I'm here in Manchester, New Hampshire, Manchester too, if you like. The factories are pumping out very different things, robotics and bioengineering. What if, in the future, there was a Manchester 3, like a planet or a galaxy? Like, what if I made a story, possibly an audio narration? Imagine if... He was interrupted when someone began to scream. It was a wild, powerful sound, a full-throated, unhinged zombie apocalypse scream. It silenced all the conversation. The music stopped, and so did the mirror ball. Alexander looked around for the cause, but no one was hurt. There was no violence or confrontation. A deep, vibrating bass drone permeated everything. Something huge and feathered shot past the window, and he jumped to his feet. He approached the window carefully and strained to see out. The sky seemed to be ripped open, like a chunk had been bitten out of it. Around the edges plumed trails of white smoke like car exhaust. The tear vibrated, the source of the all-encompassing droning noise. Alexander turned to Pedro, but he was stuck, frozen in place, juddering slightly, his glasses in his hand. Alexander looked around. They were all stuck. Kevin, the barman, the group of Pedro's friends, and everyone else frozen, flickering, glowing gently, glitching. His heartbeat pounded in his ears. Trembling, he pulled open the door and stepped out into the freezing cold street. Above him, the silhouette of an impossibly large person loomed on the other side of the hole in the sky. They were engaged in some kind of careful activity. The sounds of switches flicked and liquids bubbling through tubes echoed everywhere. Half-consciously, he lifted his phone to record what he was seeing, but as he did, so the message tone sounded. He had a text from an unknown number. It read, You are in mortal danger, Alexander. Come to the parking lot across the street. Your friend, Meliagris. He looked over the road and saw a strangely shaped figure waiting near the car park, hidden in shadow. There were so many incomprehensible things happening all of a sudden. Everyone in the bar, the visions in the sky. Wary but determined, he approached the strange figure. What the hell is going on? He demanded. Sit down, Alexander. A voice rasped. You are about to die. We need to help you break the cycle. Who are you? He had a sick feeling that the voice wasn't human. From the shadows came a scaly leg, a curved beak, a watchful eye. His legs gave way, and he sank down. A vast, magnificent turkey emerged into the streetlight. We are Meliagris. We don't have much time, the turkey said. We need to help you break the cycle. There were shufflings and quiet gobbles from the shadows. A flock of turkeys, plump and round, their heads weirdly modeled, shuffled out and encircled him. They moved in a weirdly ritualized manner. They were sinister, but also oddly comforting, for whatever reason. Please, don't kill me, he said. The lead Meliagris gobbled in a way that sounded like laughing. We're trying to help you break the cycle, it said. We want you to live. I'm trying, I promise. I can make something good. I've had plenty of ideas. You don't understand. 
It's the ideas that are killing you. We don't have much time. The Meliagris looked up and flapped. Then all of them were turning to look at the sky. What's going on here then? Boomed a voice from above. Turkeys can't talk. You've given yourself away there, lads. The figure behind the sky stopped its activity and leaned forward into the world, revealing a woman's pale, gnarled face so large that Alexander thought he could fit into one of the wrinkles on its surface. This must be strange for you. Sorry to open up before the cycle completes, but I wanted to catch this anomaly in the act. Who are you? What are you? He asked these things reflexively. His brain had stopped trying to make sense of events. The woman withdrew her huge head, and a moment later the Meliagris froze, just like the people in the bar. Anomalous cold material isolated, her voice said from behind the sky. Three minutes till full system reset. Then she reappeared, peering closely at the Meliagris. Now then, let's find out what's what. One of the Meliagris flashed with white hot light and burst into a shower of pixels. Bits of static drifted away in the wind. The next bird in the circle flashed white and burst, and the next. You don't have to do this, said the raspy voice. But Alexander wasn't sure which Meliagris had spoken. We have our own mind. Listen, snapped the woman. You're not the first to play this game. We've had talking granite, singing spark plugs, proselytizing northwesterlies. We had to entirely remove the section of code that makes kettles, because all of them were reading out blizzard warnings. Two minutes till they set. Please, Alexander is our friend. You think I take any pleasure in this? Believe me, I don't get to see any of that sweet manner. This is just a job. It's a complex system. Weird things happen from time to time. You are not an independent sentence. You're a bit of code that's got proud of itself. A beady Meliagris eye turned towards Alexander. Remember, live free or die. Live free or die. Ugh, the woman barked. I'll give up. In one intense display, the remaining Meliagris burst into white light and disappeared into a flurrying cloud of pixels, soon swept up by the wind. Alexander had no idea what to say. The turkeys had been trying to help. Maybe. He was sorry to see them go. Please, don't kill me, he managed. I'll make something good. Anything you want. The woman threw a distracted look at him. You're still here? Sorry, little one. There's nothing I can do. There'll be another one along in a minute. In fact, she looked over her shoulder. One minute exactly. Try not to worry over it. Would it help you to know there are thousands of you all running around your little boxes, trying your hardest to make something good, something beautiful, something useful, or worthwhile, or failing that, just anything, anything at all, and none of them will ever know. What won't they know? What do I know? Good question. I suppose it's normal to get philosophical with death approaching. Hey, do you want to see an empty? Wait a second. She was swallowed by the cosmos for a moment, and then reappeared. With tweezers like a pair of aircrafts, she placed down beside him a tube some 12 or 14 feet high. Inside, suspended in fluid, was a skull. A forest of bone branches hung down, surrounded by ribbons of muscle, nerves, and tendons, 
all studded with circuitry. A ghost body. It's a bionic scaffold. It's an empty vessel. And once we introduce your stem cells, this will become you, your replacement. She removed the tube between the tweezers. Everyone enters mimesis with a purpose. Our signature environmental processes induce a creative flow state. Increase your output by 10,000%. Never suffer creative exhaustion again, etc. Blah, blah. Sorry, that's the brochure stuff. I'm not well compensated if you hadn't guessed it. A buzzer sounded. Here goes then, the woman said. Alexander fell back on the snow. Sleep took him then, without his notice. The woman's arm reached in and lifted him from the world. What can I say? Mimesis is a manufactory. No one should ever forget that. The sky closed, and the system rolled round again. <laughs>